It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I'm joined by Dr. Derek Miles, uh, head of our pain and rehab team. He is on the line. He is in the Netherlands. And this is episode 186. We're going to talk about what to do if you have a spondy. But before we get into that, Derek, it's been a minute. We last time we had you on here was about heel pain. So you're always on here and we're talking about bad stuff. So I think people are going to start associating you with like the bad doctor or the bad <laughs> provider on the barbell medicine team, but you're not a bad guy. That's, I mean, it probably depends on who you ask, but I, I feel <laughs> though I, I always have the task of approaching the problems that get presented. It's, uh, I, I, I don't know how I'd write an overly optimistic out of the gate piece because and we'll talk about this as we get into it, even with Spondy. I feel most of the orthopedic problems we're presented with, if you even look at the research, it's like 8,000 words explaining the radiographic differences and all of our classifications, and then like two paragraphs where they talk about the treatment. So right, yeah. I've been hoping to turn that paradigm on its head a little bit. Yeah, it'd be cool if you, if, if you like penned an article that, that was like very positive, like, look how great everyone's doing. This is so good and keep up the good work. But it's more, most of these are like, yes, you have this unpleasant experience. Here's uh, here's maybe what it means. Uh, here's how to contextualize it and here's how to come back from it. So this is a really important two-part series. We just published the second part yesterday. Both of those parts are linked in the description below. We talk about terminology, base rates, what it means to have a spondy, and then like what to do about it with respect to not only squat bench deadlift because it's the barbell medicine podcast but also return to sport return to practice and other considerations um also have some new stuff on youtube we have our new apparel up at the website so if you're interested in repping that latest barbell medicine swag check out the link in the description below we got to get you some new stuff derek um okay so let's let's pop into this how what to do if you've been diagnosed with a spondy first off let's just get the definitions out of the way what does that actually mean and why do you call it spondy even though there's more technical terms to use? So for one, it's a simpler way of discussing it. Spondy by itself means spine. And then we have listhesis or lysis. So lysis being to break. So the problem with this diagnosis in general is by almost association, everyone pictures the Bane slamming Batman down and breaking his back. Um, you know, or the, you know, I broke my back, Mike Tyson side of things. And yeah. (laughs) So in in the difference between a lysis or listhesis is essentially if there is any movement of one vertebrae on another. Now, like most things, it comes on a spectrum and there are grades regarding to the degree of listhesis, but you also see it work the other way. And this is part of the impetus for me really wanted to write the piece and that you're starting to see the diagnostic criteria for spondy as I'm going to refer to it also include things like stress reactions. And we're going to touch on imaging as we get into it, but to see an increased signal on imaging and then pull an athlete out of sport for four months is probably, I would argue, not a good way of managing things. Yeah. And it's casting too wide of a net on things that we're going to call problematic. So just for the listeners at home, spondylolysis, we're talking about a fracture, uh, an actual break in uh, an anatomical portion of the vertebra called the pars interarticularis. 
basically just means between two articulating surfaces. That's a fancy uh, Latin way of saying that. And then there's spondylolisthesis, which means a slip or movement uh, where one vertebra moves forward relative to the one below it. But we'll just collectively refer to these as spondy, rarely differentiating between the two, because as far as what you should do about it, how you should contextualize it, um, yeah, that doesn't really change what you do. And so kind of assigning yourself a particular diagnosis uh, and really being vigilant about what that means is probably not the way we'd like folks to think about it, um, mainly because since it doesn't change what you do, if you perseverate over the anatomical quote unquote flaw or abnormality, uh, perhaps that's limiting, then those limiting beliefs may portend a worse outcome as far as return to activity, return to sport, uh, long-term incidents of low back pain and disability and all that other sort of stuff. So if that was the first time you've ever heard anything like that about contextualization or what words mean or words being important, maybe rewind, just do that. I know it's, I speak quickly, but like rewind, go through that, put it in your brain hole and then continue on with the podcast. So one of the big parts of your article series was like how often this actually happens and when it's commonly diagnosed. So both those parts. So who gets a quote unquote spondy and how often does this happen? So, like most things, it is really contingent upon the type of athlete you are and what you're doing. The typical person who you're going to see with a spondy is a male adolescent athlete who participates in a sport involving extension and rotation. So you see it a, a decent bit in baseball, um, wrestling, uh, swimming, you, you'll see them. But we're starting to see an uptick in female athletes as well, especially gymnasts and volleyball players. And I would posit that a lot of this is adaptations to sport because as with most things, the dose and intensity really matter. And it, it turns out if your sport is predicated upon trying to touch your head to the back of your, your glutes, you, you're probably going to get into some positions that are going to attack some joints. That doesn't inherently mean that it's bad. It, it just means we might want to titrate what we're calling something is bad depending on what those base rates are. And, and we see this play out in the literature in that if you take all adolescent athletes, you, your base rate really falls in three to 7%. So that means if you take a X-ray of every kid, three to 7% of them are going to have this diagnosis without any symptoms whatsoever. But there is a high degree of variance in it. And I, I've seen some studies that are smaller cohorts, but show numbers up into the teens percentages for certain sports like wrestling and even adolescent weightlifting. And, and here's probably the one we really want to talk about, even differentiating between powerlifting and weightlifting in that regard. But within the adult population, the base rate is, is tends to fall between about 10 and 12%. So, you know, if you're with a group of 10 friends, if we do an x-ray, odds are one of you is going to have something on imaging and that looks, completely asymptomatic. That looks like a spondy, either a spondylolysis yeah. or spondylolisthesis. Now, this may not be known because some of this stuff still actually hasn't been studied adequately. And I know people at home are like, how is that possible? Like, we've been around for a long time. We've had x-ray imaging techniques and advanced imaging techniques for a while. Like, why is why do we not know this? Is it more common for people who have low back pain, just acute so short-term low back pain to have a spondylolysis or spondylolisthesis than not? It would depend on the study you read, but the higher quality ones with larger cohorts, no. And we do have what I would argue is one of the better 
longitudinal studies I've ever seen in regards to spondies in that they had a 45 year outcome mm. of adolescence. And so you, you rarely see anything that tracks people for two years or five years, much less 45. And in this cohort, there was no increased incidence of low back pain compared to individuals who did not have a spondy. So, so it may just, may just be something you see. Yeah. So that, that actually calls into the question, uh, you know, how important it is to get x-rays or advanced imaging. So, uh, you know, an MRI, CT, et cetera. P- I, I know we have for the for adult population, there's this choosing wisely uh, campaign about, about when, you know, imaging is important in low back pain. And in, you know, in general, the, the point is if, you know, without red flag symptoms, uh, you know, so loss of bowel or bladder control, weight loss, or previous diagnosis of cancer and onset of low back pain, you know, in general, you're not supposed to do imaging because not only does it not change what you do, but there's an increased incidence of disability for people who do get imaging because again, they ascribe meaning to findings that were twuds, time wasted on useless detail artifacts, you know, of of the imaging. Uh, Is imaging important here? Because I got to ask you, like, how do we even know these base rates exist? Like are people just being recommended for, for, for imaging and, and, and yeah. So, so is imaging even important for this stuff? Well, I would say it depends if you're having what you were describing, uh, you know, bowel bladder dysfunction or ridiculous symptoms. Yes. So any pain down your leg being ridiculous symptoms. Yes. You should be imaged. Um, but if there are no neurological deficits, Imaging adds nothing to the problem and actually actually, probably said wrong, probably does add something to the problem in that it cr- puts a bunch of polysyllabic words that no one really understands. And, and I think a lot of times we forget that when we're as clinicians looking for the diagnosis, it's as much for us as for the patient and how we're trained, it's like this Pavlovian thing. When we get the right diagnosis, the little bell goes off and we start salivating. But what we've done is set the course for the patient. So where our diagnostic problem ends, their journey begins. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, if you're a researcher and you're looking at like spondy, either spondylolysis or spondylolisthesis, you got to have imaging because otherwise, like, how do you, you know, call the thing, the thing (laughs) without having a picture of it and having some sort of, uh, radiographic evidence. But as far as, you know, if, if you had a, a younger athlete, so an adolescent, for example, or even an adult, um, you know, athlete who's got low back pain without any of these symptoms, you know, getting an an x-ray and calling it spondy probably doesn't set that person up for success. And also again, as a clinician, doesn't necessarily give you reason to believe that that is the quote unquote source of their, of their pain. Um, even though you're looking for an explanation, right? Just that's like that placates you as the provider. Uh, and, and this brings up the point that, that you and I have gone back and forth about not arguing, but like most just head, head nodding and, and whatnot is this, this idea of a stress response and, and adaptation. You know, if you have an athlete or someone who recreationally participates in a sport or activity that there, there's rotation and extension that is going to call upon the musculoskeletal system in its entirety and, and the body of the rest of it too, to adapt to that activity, particularly if it's dosed responsibly and appropriately, it gives the, the body an opportunity to kind of catch up and become better prepared. So when you x-ray, for example, a, an adolescent weightlifters spine, and you see these sort of areas of lucency, for example, or like swelling or, or whatever. And you're like, 
mm, abnormal, don't like, I don't know what to call this thing or, or what it means. Yeah, you could say, oh, that's tissue damage, for example, or that's bad because it's abnormal and we don't see that in people who don't do weightlifting, but it could equally be just characterized as a stress response. You know, you're catching this intermediate stage where the body is in the process of ad- adapting. So that, that even goes back to like, what do you call an injury? Like if you're talking like a tissue injury, oh, it's a tissue injury. I'm like, well, how do you know you're catching something that's like leading to a bad outcome versus an adaptive outcome? You know, it's kind of like the two roads diverging. Like, how do you, how do you know? Well, I've said for years that I think the study I would love to see done is to take some adolescent female volleyball players and do an MRI two weeks before their season starts and then two weeks after their season starts and just see what kind of stress reactions pop out. Because if you look at it, we have studies for like distance runners that have shown tibial changes after running a marathon. And we don't consider those bad. It's just, yeah, you ran a marathon. And it turns out if you haven't done anything all summer, and all of a sudden we're going to take you into two a day practices where you're in a squat and having to dive down and, and dig volleyballs, odds are your back might hurt a little bit, but I've seen too many athletes over the years who get that x-ray and they're like, well, it might be there. So we're going to shut you down for three months. And during that three months, you're not allowed to do anything. And, or we're going to do a transverse abdominus contraction and, and talk about your multifidi firing and we now end up with an athlete who hasn't done anything for an additional three months. They're out of shape. And even though they, they may be feeling better just because of natural history, well, what, how, how well have I prepared them to go back to sport? Yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd almost need for like each sport or like type of sport, some sort of longitudinal study where you Im- image them serially to sort of characterize the normal, right. And then be able to differentiate between the abnormal but again, that's going to vary by individuals, the training, the activity, their level of competitiveness, their genetic, like all sorts of stuff, right? But that that's a lot of the stuff that I think we end up seeing, particularly when it relates to injury risk or like imaging being associated with injuries, um, especially when you see the disconnect between abnormality on imaging and function, right? So like there's a study uh, that we talk about, there's 20 plus major league baseball players where they image, they do an MRI on their shoulders prior to each season for 10 years. And you see that all of them have some evidence of tissue abnormality in the rotator cuff. Some of them with a partial tear, some with the articular surface tear of the supraspinatus tendon, and then a couple showing full thickness rotator cuff tears. And so you're, you're thinking like, Oh my God, these pitchers are beat up and these are preseason. It's not even like in the middle of the season. And it's like, yeah, actually those with the most quote unquote abnormalities on imaging, they, they pitched the most innings over their career. Then it's like, Wait, so if we were making a correlation there, we'd say <laughs> the more abnormalities you have on imaging, the more innings you're likely to pitch, uh, or the opposite, you could say that too. Well, I, I think this gets into a, a quick sidebar on absolute and relative risk. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I do something and I can decrease your risk of injury by half, and then as a result, I made you a better athlete and you get double the reps – well, our, our risk is still the same because you had twice as many exposures mm-hmm. yeah. now. Yep, And, and I, I think that's underappreciated a lot of times because as it turns out, if you're a really good athlete, you tend to get more reps than everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Your exposure and, goes, goes up, right? More hours yeah. participating, stuff like that. 
Well, and, and even if you look at the vernacular we use with high level athlete, we call them all freaks. So why would we expect someone with a freak to have normal or someone who's a freak to have normal anatomy? Like yeah. freak, freaks are going to do freak things and look like freaks. Yeah. 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 It's, it is interesting. You, you know, again, I, you're, if you're a radiologist, I empathize because, you know, you're getting these uh, imaging orders and images to review and, and all you can do is compare them to normal, however you were trained and whatever, you know, normal means. And, and you see these things that are decidedly abnormal because most of your po- the population and the images that you subsequently see are not athletes and certainly not high level athletes. And so when you see something that catches your eye, it's all pattern recognition, not all pattern recognition, but it, a lot of this is pattern recognition. You're like, huh, uh, that seems normal or abnormal rather, uh, bad, you know, although to their credit, most of the time they'll tell you to correlate clinically or whatever. And, and in this particular case with Spondy, it seems like the clinical correlation is relatively low. If you have, you know, evidence of a spondylolysis or spondylolisthesis, it doesn't necessarily correlate with symptoms that well. Cause again, you have people who are asymptomatic who have these things and you have people who are symptomatic who don't have these things. And it's like, uh, no greater prevalence of symptoms with these things. So then it's like, all right, maybe we need to move away from this very reductionist sort of association where like, if you have these things, back pain. And, you know, I, we published the first part of your article series and I, my DMs blew up. People were like, I had Spondy and this, that, and the other, and I couldn't, you know, exercise or do these things. And so now I haven't been doing squats or deadlifts. Are you saying that I should do those things? And I'm like, well, if you, if you want to, I mean, the goal is like unencumbered, unrestricted movement. So you can do all the things you want to do. You can live a full and complete life without squats and deadlifts. But I do think if you're training for sport, those probably have, or those movement patterns in general have some benefit. But if you're telling me I don't want to squat with a bar on my back, I only want to do front squats. I'm like, I mean, okay, cool. Yeah. Live your life. But I think that in and of itself really gets it a lot of the reason I even wrote this article is because this is one of those diagnoses that tends to come with where you need three months rest and you need to never do the thing that stressed you again. And that's just not the case. I I think we tend to approach training and rest too often in a black and white spectrum of training has to be at RPE nine plus when rest is we're just sitting there watching Netflix all day. And there's a massive spectrum in between those two. Now, if someone's highly symptomatic, we might need to start with some of the basic traditional rehab exercises. Hell, we might even need to bust out a a yellow TheraBand every now and then. Oh, boy. But yeah, no, that's for somebody who's really acute along the way. But finding that starting point and then building back up. If you haven't squatted in five years, it's probably not because they're there's anything wrong with your back at this point that's limiting you so much as the fact you haven't squatted in five years. Yeah. And the issue with a lot of athletes, if you used to squat 400 pounds, you haven't squatted in five years, you still expect to go back and be able to squat 400 pounds. And that's just not how it works. We, we may need to start, I don't know, 65 pounds, but you're still squatting and working back into it. Yeah. If you're listening to this far, again, we're talking with Dr. Derek Miles about spondy. So spondylolysis is a break in the uh, part of the anatomy of the uh, vertebra, the pars articularis, interarticularis rather, uh, or spondylolisthesis, which means it's slipping or movement forward of one vertebra relative to another. Um, but, but this is not just applicable to those two diagnoses. This is 
pretty much applicable, uh, you know, on one level, all lower back pain <laughs> that people are presenting with, um, you know, outside of ones that need emergent management and urgent management um, due to red flag signs, like again, uh, loss of bowel or bladder function, weight loss associated with previous or current cancer diagnosis, fever, things of that nature where you're like, man, we got to make sure that we image the sting and, and find out that, this, that something, if something's in there. Um, but, you know, people will just run of the mill, what we would call nonspecific low back pain. And then even broadly, you can apply this sort of process to all other sort of musculoskeletal uh, injuries. So we're going to talk about what to do about it now. So the person who's just received this diagnosis, like brand new, is like has likely presented to their healthcare provider with low back pain, like in the center of their back. What other common symptoms do they do they have that like kind of initiates the workup and then subsequent diagnosis of this uh, of these conditions? It tends to be centralized low back pain, so pain in the center of your back, and then um, more it's pronounced like the low pain. back or middle, like yes, the... lower back. Okay, sure. And and then more pronounced pain with extension and rotation. Okay, it is so, your classical presentation. So you'd have somebody go into a lumbar extension and twist, and they'd have severe pain with that, or that's provocative compared to just moving into flexion. Um, whereas you'd have people who with you know, this sort of non-specific low back pain that happens uh, more commonly that may be sensitive at flexion, you know, rounding of the spine, maybe sensitive in just extension uh, and not sensitive with rotation or sensitive everywhere. This global sort of sensitivity, you know, kind of just depends. But so that, that person presents the, their healthcare provider, the healthcare provider goes, this thing is weird. Let's get an x-ray. And so then they get the x-ray or series of x-rays and come back with this diagnosis. Now, to your knowledge, does the radiologist usually identify this on the scan where they say, oh, evidence of spondylolysis at, you know, L3 or L4 or, or, or uh, evidence of spondylolisthesis at a particular level? Or is this more like the clinician themselves looking at the image and, and, and IDing this? I mean, I've, I've seen it both ways. Uh, the radiologist almost always calls it, but uh, I'm sure clinicians listening to this have also seen the, why I want to see the image for myself clinician who mm -hmm. then goes and calls it against the radiologist. Sure. And I, I think it is that demarcation problem once again of it, it, what lucency or what increased signal are we going to call this something beyond just normal stress adaptation? Yeah. Sidebar, did you read the book, The Normal versus the Pathological? Yes. The Normal and the Pathological yeah. book. I, yeah. I, was, I, I, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. It, it, it's just, it's kind of relevant to this, but it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. what do you call normal and how do you, how is that established and, and history uh, of, of the kind of, of science and its intersection with, with modern medicine. So pretty interesting book. Would recommend uh, if you've got, man, that was a long one too. So you need some time on your hands to read that thing. It's, make, it's dense. Yeah. It's one of those, it's chewy. You'll get through three pages and then need to sit there and, uh, reflect on it for an hour or so. Right. It is not an audiobook type of book. It's, it's one of those things. Yeah. You read a few pages and you're like, I need to go back and like make some notes to make sure that I got that or at least some of that. So in any case, the person gets this diagnosis one by hook or by crook. And then the typical, you know, as far as I've seen recommendations are, yeah, you got to take three months off. we got to unload this thing. Um, why, why is that not your preferred approach? For many reasons. Going back to what I said, no one's ever gotten more athletic by doing nothing. And 
I, I think removing all stimulus, the analogy I have used with athletes and parents before is if you failed a math test and I told you we're going to take three months off math and then come back and take the test again, everyone pretty much accepts that's an awful idea. And instead in sport, a lot of times we're like, well, let's take three months off of activity and then we'll put you back in sport. Well, I wonder why this thing happened again. And I, I think part of it is, once again, we tend to think of rest and load in very black and white as opposed to a spectrum. And the issue is there are things that we may need to strike from a program for a little while, but no matter how many things are struck out, there's always some things we can work on. If we can't do heavy extension or rotation for a little while, well, maybe we can do some light cardio. Maybe we can work on some fundamental movement patterns or, or just get moving and break a sweat and, and get out and have some fun. Because I think the other side of this that we haven't even really touched on is if I give you three months rest and you're used to training, especially if it's part of your identity, like you're probably going to have some not so great thoughts over those three months anyway, or also. So a lot of times the rehab side is also like the good old Voltaire. My job is to keep you busy while things heal. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the, what I've seen the most, and again, this is a self-selected population, you know, people who either follow barbell medicine or who I come in contact with, they tend to be really invested in training and physical activity and this and the other. And they've been either previously diagnosed with the spondy. And so they have this periodic flare up of their, oh, my spondy's bothering me again today and whatever, but I got a squat. So, you know, what do, and it's like this, this revolving door that they like, like never like get over it, so to speak. And, and I think what, what happens there is the activity modification when these things flare up is inappropriate in both the dose and then the duration. And so they've never sort of desensitized themselves to the movements that they want to do and built up enough capacity to you know, subsequently tolerate the type of training they want to do. Right. So it's like take three months off, not only detrains people, they get less fit, less training tolerance, but it also does nothing to like desensitize them to the training that they want to do. It may desensitize them globally, but then at, when they return, it's like, well, we didn't do any of the legwork in the interim and we had this opportunity to, to like really make some progress. And so I think you know, that's the most type of common person that I see, you know, somebody with a new diagnosis the first time that's like the prime time to say, all right, well, let's take a few steps back. Let's desensitize you via activity modification. We'll talk about the specifics of that shortly, but then also we have this time to sort of kind of build tolerance to what you ultimately want to do. And that may be SBD, that may be the Olympic lifts, that may be playing a ton of golf that may, you know, maybe a ton, you know, com combination of all of these things. But if you don't do that and then you're like, all right, well, I took three months off now. What it's like, okay, well now we can start the return to activity. And it's like, well, you just put yourself behind the eight ball because you detrained for three months. You're less fit now. And, and, and the progress, the, the process, should you choose to accept it is even more prolonged now because you're starting from a kind of a worse off uh, spot. So uh, is there any, point for like absolute rest here with, with this diagnosis first I, I want to circle back because you had the greatest double entendre of all time and you said oh, they skipped the leg work to <laughs> i was hoping and somebody would pick that up on the yeah that was a beautiful beautiful pun and i want to give you full credit for that thank you there and, and i think absolute rest to me is sitting on the couch or bed rest 
And there may be an instance as a complete outlier where you need that for two or three days, but otherwise there, we need to be facilitating some movement out of it. And it, it is, you know, I think sometimes we forget that even something as simple as getting on the bike for 10 minutes really slow or going for a walk or, or just some simple movements tends to do people a lot of good, especially in the very acute phase. And it's not so much that anything needs to be really intense. It just needs to be moving. And with especially the lifting population, I think that finding ways to get rid of that anchor to the prior weights pre-injury is really the skill out of it because you know, I know it's frustrating to only squat 135 when you're used to squatting 415. But if you have a choice between 135 and nothing, most people are probably going to take 135. Well, you should. Out of that. Right. Yeah, you yeah. should. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, and I'm, of course, speaking kilos here. It's so, like the contribution um, to your 401k, right? You'd prefer a six-figure yeah. number, but you'll take what you can get. Well, it's, and I can't tell you how often I use that analogy, but it's the great uh, Warren Buffett quotes, like nobody wants to get yoked slow. And, <laughs> right. And that really is how this works. And, and I think a lot of times what ends up happening is we have this injury and we go back and start building back up. And for some reason, we all forego those fundamental principles that got us there in the first place. And we want every shortcut and quick fix we can to try and close that gap as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of, it happens lockstep with the sort of reduction in sensitivity. So, so effectively you have somebody who is super sensitive. They're like, I can't squat close to my PR right now or, or my normal day-to-day level of strength because I'm so sensitive. And so invariably some activity modification happens necessarily, right? They're just like, I can't do it. So I got to either rest or skip squats this week and next week or whatever. And then they start to feel a little bit better because regression to the mean time, you know, goes by and they're like, Oh, I'm feeling a little bit better. So uh, I'll squat today. And instead of having a, it doesn't have to be formalized or certainly not rigid plan to sort of like return to activity, not like return to where you were before, but better than you were before. Then they'd kind of jump back into something that they were similarly doing. And it's like, well, we got a little bit detrained in the interim and we haven't taken steps to make you better prepared for this stuff. So what do you think is going to happen? It may not be the first session back, the second session, third session, maybe months later, but it's like the cyclical revolving door of, yeah, I feel a little bit better injury. Yeah, I feel a little bit better injury. Yeah, I feel a little bit. And it's like, man, imagine if you could string together years of like pretty much injury free or only mild or short term sort of deviations from what you want to do. Imagine the progress you could make over the years versus how quickly can I get back to where I was before? Well, and I think here to take our economics analogy even further, like when you have an injury, you just need to diversify what you're doing yeah and yeah and really just add in other exercises you know i get it that sbd is king but occasionally some split squats are, are perfectly fine or even some leg extensions yeah God split squats yeah. yeah i've got uh, a client right now that i'm i'm kind of having them on the blood flow restriction train for example mm-hmm. and the whole point is like i can limit the load very effectively using that and they can still feel like they're working hard and i'm not saying there's anything super unique about bfr blood flow restriction other than you can get away with using lighter loads and stimulate 
some some adaptations. Um, so yeah, let's let's pop into some specifics on like okay, got this injury, got this diagnosis in particular. What do? Um, so let's let's uh, approach this for each each question from two perspectives. Perspective number one: This is a new diagnosis. You just got it, and so you're like scary. You just got diagnosed with a three syllable sort of thing. It's to your spine and you only get one spine. You're like, Oh boy. Uh, and then the second perspective is you've had this before it's off and on and you're now you're back at it again. So you just got this, you're super sensitive. What's like your initial management? What do you, what do you do right off the bat? Well, I think I'm going to play the, it depends on the athlete card, but then I'm going to step back and generalize it out. It, it really is contingent upon what the athlete can tolerate someone who is really acute and, and having trouble sitting or, you know, bending at all. We're probably going to start with some very simple things like, you know, bridges and sidesteps and step ups and, and trying to get on the bike. And it's not even that I'm banking those reps as gains. I'm banking those reps is more of a calm down side of things and, and it's okay to move. And then we start, hitting the inflection point to, you know, seeing what we can work on. So it is in, a, in the piece, I, I framed it as light and slow and, and it is the first part of it. And it's more just building in those movements in a nice, slow, controlled manner to see what you can tolerate. And, and from there, we can start working into more of the heavy and slow side of things which is the conversations we normally talk about with uh, tempo work and limiting range of motion. But for an athlete that might not be as SPD oriented, it it is starting to put in things like machines and and just get some resistance training through the system. Yeah. Yeah. I find that that people with these things, they'll, they'll tend to not want to go light enough from the jump. Right. Particularly if they have a history of training, you're like, all right, we're going to do some leg extensions um, just to kind of get you moving some leg, cur- some machine stuff if they have access to it, for example, um, just to get some some movement of the lower extremities. We're not loading the spine because you've that person, if they're just, you know, going to be programmed leg extensions, leg curls, maybe they don't tolerate loading at that point. Uh, and, and they're like, okay, cool. So I'm going to go max the stack out and, uh, you know, use a bunch of body English and, and do this thing. And it's like, well, that's not the point, right? We're, we're not trying to trying to push this like we normally would if we were getting ready for a, some sort of strength contest. We're really just trying to uh, uh, get the person moving. And so that's why a lot of our, our rehab templates start with higher reps and tempo work. And it's some sort of isolatory isolation focus because it's like, how do we make sure or at least hedge our bets that you're going to take enough weight off this 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 the bar <laughs> just to desensitize you. And so, yeah, trying to get somebody doing leg extensions for 15 reps at an RP seven or eight with a three Oh three tempo or something like that. It's like, well, necessarily if you're doing the thing, you can't go as heavy as if I said, all right, do some leg extensions, make them heavy. You know, it's just adding the qualifiers make ensures that somebody starts light and slow. And, and I agree with you. We're not really banking gains. We're, we're banking wins as far as like being able to move, without sensitivity, without fear, without, you know, trepidation, so to speak. So lighter and slower than you think you should be to sort of bank those wins. And then we can progress from there. We'd rather take, you know, one step forward and no steps back, right. Then two steps forward and two steps back. 
So uh, what about the person, you know, when this happens, you get it. I know you see this a lot. I see it too. They, they, all right, Miles, I'm, I'm doing what you say to do or whatever. And day one was great, man. I went in there. I got a sick pump, my legs and I'm feeling good, you know, compared to where I was a few days ago, things are, things are, are going great. But then this day two, oh my God, it was a disaster. Like I was super sensitive. I, I, you know, could barely get on the leg press or whatever, or barely do body weight split squats. Ugh, it's not working. What's, what's your, what's your response to that? We got to trust the process and, and I'm looking at week over week versus day versus, versus day over day. And I really think here to your point, uh, a lot of people will get that first day and it's a win and they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm back in I'm back, day baby. two. We get that. Yeah. We get that overshoot out of it. And this is where, and I've said this before and you and I have talked about it before, that anchoring of RPE, that little inflection change between could and should comes in handy. Just because if we said an RPE eight is should I do two more reps, it tends to increase that margin of error for us a little bit. And with this, or with any, I would argue, relatively acute injury, I want a really wide margin of error. Like I, I want to give myself a cushion. Now, the closer we're getting to return to sport and things are feeling better, I'm going to keep removing that cushion. But if you're coming in and telling me your baseline symptoms are four out of 10, it's highly unlikely. I'm going to tell you that we're going to even touch anything above RPE six today because it's, there's no point in me doing or, or working towards a training effect and getting you gains. If me working that variable is going to slow down our progression back to you training like you want to train. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather have a longer phase of lighter and slower and have it be maybe a little too light and a little too slow uh, and and extend that duration than like end up back at square one uh, at any point in the, in the process. And so, again, when you look at our, our rehab templates, people are like, do I have to do all what, four weeks of phase one? It's like you, you don't have to do anything. You're an autonomous adult, you can make your own decisions. However, my recommendation would be to do the whole thing. And if it takes an extra week to get to, you know, full unrestricted, unencumbered, you know, activity where you do what you want. Great. I'd rather take an extra week or two than take extra months if ever getting back there. And, and again, I think the prevalence of this sort of cyclical, that revolving door thing where people keep having these issues, keep having these issues is, is, is decent evidence suggesting that people are bad at like throttling themselves back, you know, putting the restrictor plate on, uh, so they, they don't, you know, end up back where they started. So that light and slow phase, if you're programming for somebody and it's just a general person, um, you know, nothing, and you can't, hammer out the specifics here because we're generalizing you know we're talking two weeks three weeks four weeks what's the i would say in in general two weeks is about how i mean if you look at most acute low back episodes you you tend to get symptoms calm down in 10 to 14 days and i'll ballpark that for people and have no problem but I, i do like to anchor it to you know we'll get there we get there because if someone does exactly what you said and comes into that second workout now kicks their coverage that tends to kind of knock us back to day zero. Yep. Yeah. The other, the other thing too, is if you have somebody who's got 
no history of exercise, well, no recent history of exercise. For example, they've been dealing with this thing off and on for the better part of, you know, five years, for example, and they haven't really done any dedicated training. Well, they're detrained to start with. And so having that longer lead in period, right, prepares them for what's going to come. And if you have a person who's relatively well-trained, this is the first time they've dealt with this. And, you know, we got maybe two weeks of, of sort of this light and slow phase. That's fine. They haven't really lost much, if anything, you know, fitness wise in that time, if they're being active. And so I feel more comfortable sort of ramping it up a little bit afterwards. Cause again, they're relatively fit, but somebody who hasn't been doing anything, my brother is, is a prime example. My brother, for whatever reason, has all of the athletic genes in our family. Like I think when <laughs> the, the eggs were being fertilized, like <laughs> my egg, they're like any athletic ability. And they're like, nah, dog. And then with his, he got all of them. Um, but he's been dealing with this, this back pain, you know, off and on for, for the better part of, uh, maybe, maybe 10 years plus. And so his like, he's not been able to participate in regular sort of exercise and training. So his level of preparedness, his fitness level with respect to resistance training and even some cardiorespiratory fitness stuff is much lower than it should be. And so having this initial phase be a little longer, well, we're just prepping him for what's going to come. And I'm okay with taking longer in this phase and getting, like, as you said, getting there when we get there. Yeah. And I, I think we need to also be comfortable like one, actually, before I even say that, I'm just going to say explicitly, you and I are people too, because uh, even managing our own injuries, I know I've helped you before. And I have certainly reached out to Charlie and Cam and some of our other clinicians when I've been dealing with stuff. So this isn't a, it's your fault. If you're listening to this, we are just as bad at it. And that's why oh, yeah. we need other people in order to do it. And I do think there's a sub point there of if you are working with a coach, this is where communication really is key because mm -hmm. too often I will see athletes who will try and push through it and not tell me that they're experiencing things because they're worried it's an inconvenience or I'm going to judge them or whatever. But my base setting as a coach is if you don't tell me anything's wrong, I assume everything's okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah there needs to be that open line of communication. And I think a lot of lifters would be likely better off if they were more honest about how they're feeling. Yeah. Because I, I think there is that, like, I need to dial this to 11 today when <laughs> you, you might need to take it to seven. Well, so. right. It's like this, it's like this idea. You're going to hope for the best. And Austin and I were actually writing this article about progressive loading. And uh, it, instead of hoping for the best, I'm hoping for average. Just statistically speaking, it's more likely that I'm going to have an average day of performance. And so I'm hoping for average. And if I get signals, you know, uh, during warm up, during my preparatory phase that it's below average, well, take that. And if I get opposite signals that, you know, this is a banner day, well, let, let's send it if, if that's appropriate. Um, but yeah, we're hoping for average. We're not, I'm not trying to hope or, or tilt the scales towards having a banner day because that's out of my control, you know? So, uh, when we've recently worked together for my shoulder dislocation and then prior to that, the adductor tear, I really did enjoy the sort of breaks and, and limits that we placed on what I was doing. It wasn't hard. The first few sessions weren't the hardest sessions. They were, they had pain, some pain with the movement, but that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was when I was feeling pretty good. And I was like, well, I can only deadlift 300 today. 
versus I feel like I could potentially deadlift 600 plus and, 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 you know, but it was that sort of putting in that legwork, so to speak, that, that allowed me to go to, a, in this case, a powerlifting meet and put up a PR total 10 weeks after shoulder dislocation. So I just think, and this, I don't want to perseverate on this point too much. The, the this light and slow phase, this is the non-sexy, not fun stuff that you need. You need to lay this groundwork. You need to build the base of the pyramid so that you can move on to the next phase successfully. Do not skip it. Do not pass go collect your $200. Again, two weeks seems perfectly reasonable for a general person who's been training, who's relatively fit, et cetera. But for the person who's probably not listening to this podcast, but maybe a parent, sibling, cousin, whatever, who doesn't have this history, that might be four weeks or six weeks. Um, but the important part is to get over the hump and be able to make it to the next phase. Well, and I think I, I've joked for years that I'm going to, at some point, make my own WWJD bracelets <laughs> that say DDSS. Don't do stupid <laughs> stuff, except uh, I'll keep it clean for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Just because I do think there needs to be that, like, hey, look down at your wrist. Is this a good idea right now? Mm-hmm. And that's normally, like, my first question to an athlete when they present their idea to me is, do you think this is a good idea? Sure. And most of the time, if I'm having to ask that question, every person in the chat knows the answer is no. Right. So just to recapitulate the lighter and slower phase, higher reps, sometimes with a slow tempo, some many times or oftentimes with some sort of isolation or, or, uh, you know, reduction in, uh, the amount of joints being involved, uh, muscle mass being involved. So instead of a squat, it might be leg extensions, leg curls, leg press, something like that. You're basically just trying to find an entry point that is tolerable, um, that you can train and, 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 and lube the deal, uh, move, move the muscles, move the body and, and ultimately start to desensitize yourself. So, um, if you have limited equipment, this be, can become challenging as far as like what to do, but there are a lot of things that you have not seen on our Instagram page that you can do. So it doesn't always have to be a back squat or front squat, zercher squat, whatever you could be skater squats, could be curtsy squats, could be lunges, could be step-ups, could be bridges, could be, uh, hip thrusts, you know, whatever, uh, goblet squats. There's, there's, you know, you're only limited by your imagination here, but the main thing is you got to move and then start to build tolerance and capacity for not just exercise if you haven't been training before but also uh uh uh, this sort of physical 401k this bank of like okay i have built some capacity and i can move on to the next phase which is heavy and slow so we're adding some load but we're still going slow and and i think that's the big point here people are like oh i just so no tempo controls or I can do ballistic movements. I can do whatever. The second phase you have somebody progress to is this still, are we still on the machines if they have access to in general, or is this, are they back under the bar? Or what, what happens here? Well, I think it depends on how we prioritize what's going on for this specific athlete. A lot of times they will still be on the machines and in the initial phase, I, I will say we're going to squat, but we're doing it to reintroduce the movement. And we're like machines may be the meat and potatoes and squat might be the piece of broccoli that, you know, in at a certain point that inflection point changes to where, you know, squats are now the hard part. And we're still for the sake of argument, say it's 70% and we're still getting some of that ancillary work from some other things, just because a, a lot of times an athlete still has the ability or has more gas in the tank 
as it were, to make the car analogy and make everyone's eyes roll. And we can get that from some other exercises. Yeah. So it's, so what you're trying to do is like use in this example, like a leg press, they can push that heavier, for example, mm-hmm. it, it's less risk to them from, you know, as far as how they understand and contextualize what's going on with themselves, but they can push the weight on that, get some higher intensity stuff, but then reintroduce the actual movement that they want to do in this case, maybe a squat or a deadlift, um, for a person who's untrained, that may also be the case, right? If they're like, well, I've never squatted before period. And now you want me to squat and you're like, well, I think that's a movement pattern you should be able to do just from like a independent living standpoint and like a transference to any sort of recreational activity you, you, you can name. But I don't think we need to load that, you know, fives or eights at RP eight or nine, but I think we may be able to do that on the leg press and the leg press, for mm-hmm. example, certainly loads the spine in this particular uh, uh, context a little bit, you know, it's not, it's not nothing. Whereas a leg extension probably even less so, uh, maybe, maybe zero. So you're kind of progressing, uh, as far as the load you're placing on the individual, but you're still giving them some stuff now, uh, where you didn't before where they can work hard. Um, I think, uh, when we were discussing the knee rehab template, for example, you liked either split squats or lunges where you blocked the knee in a way. So you, you, you didn't let the knee go, uh, uh, travel really far forward because that tends to make folks symptomatic, but you wanted them to be able to do something where there was knee flexion that allowed them to push the weight or a leg extension. You could, you could do that if they weren't symptomatic, but it, at the same time you were reintroducing squats, it was just light. It was, you know, mm-hmm. 50%, 55%, you lighter percents. Um, and so that, I think that's the hallmark of this heavy and slow phase. What's the difference between that and the light and slow. There's some stuff that you actually get to push heavier, uh, and then reintroduction of movements that maybe you want to do with, and I think the analogy is perfect. It's not your meat and potatoes. It's the accoutrements, if you will. Um, so at this point for the heavy and slow, how long is that phase going to last? Cause you're trying to graduate next to like no tempo restrictions, for example. But so how long does it normally take for people to get through this? For a acute injury. Um, most of the time I would put this in like the eight to 10 week range. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm still going to caveat it's specific for everyone, but if we're talking our probability Bayesian curve, eight to 10 weeks before we're ready to start taking the training wheels off as yeah. it were. And people are thinking, you're like, all right, so look, if I had two weeks on the intro and 10 weeks on this, I'm at three months. Well, what the heck? And it's like, all right, well, if you've been doing this revolving door thing, you've been dealing this with this for years. So what's three months? Well, on top of that, you're like, well, the normal advice is to rest for three months. So we got you there, except you were training the whole time. Yeah. And your fitness levels are likely higher. Uh, and then for the person that's the first time that they've been dealing with this, um, we're, we're actually putting you in a position where you're not going to have to deal with this all the time. You're not going to enter that revolving door, uh, for example, and, uh, you may never have to deal with, with this particular type of thing again, because, uh, we've actually built the capacity that you lacked the first time around. So yeah, I would agree with that eight to 10 weeks, trying to be conservative, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more we get there when we get there. But again, the hallmark of this stage is there's actually some stuff where you can push heavier and identifying that is another piece of that first phase. Like, Oh, what are some things that I start feeling comfortable with? Not sensitive to not afraid of whatever, uh, in the first phase that I would feel comfortable with pushing heavier in the second phase without that first phase, you don't really get to explore a bunch of different movements and figure out like, Oh, I could do this or mm, not ready on that, but I still want to get better at it. When I think here it's worth also mentioning that sometimes squat and deadlift don't come together. 
sometimes one may be feeling better and the other not so much. And we may be ramping into heavier squats and still needing to have some training wheels on deadlift. And it's not as simple as we hit this timeline, you check this box. It, it is contingent upon each individual athlete. And I think it's even worth having a little bit of a caveat here into the technique realm to where I, I know, I'm sorry, to where I've certainly seen athletes that have very, very, very good technique. Like if they posted their videos on Instagram, they might only get four comments. And those athletes, I think sometimes struggle a little bit more because as you're trying to get back into this, there does need to be a little bit more variability in movement. And I have an athlete right now who is working to some top sets at RPE eight. And then we have drop sets at like 50% of weight to where I, I think I'm calling them ugly squats right now, where I, I just want him working on getting comfortable under the bar and moving in different ways. Cause when you watched him squat, every descent was like a perfect back angle and he was just so tight that I think he was ending up contributing to his problem because there was just no variation in what was going on at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And any, and if he perceived any sort of variation, he'd be like, no bad out. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just as an aside. Yeah. Even elite level lifters have significant variation in all planes when they squat. And this is not uh, like a bug in the system. It's a feature. They effectively, they're able to tolerate imperfections, if you will, and I wouldn't even call them imperfections. I would just call them variations in movement and still find a way to successfully do the thing. Um, and this happens at maximal loads. This happens at submaximal loads. It's just, again, it's not a bug. It's a feature. Um, okay. So we had the first two phases, the sort of intro phase where we find stuff that you can do. Everything is artificially light so we can desensitize and we've done a wide movement variety to identify things that maybe we could push, um, and built some, some confidence, built a little bit of tolerance. Next phase is this heavier and slow. We get to do some stuff that's heavier and reintroduce maybe some movements that we want to do, but, but again, kind of artificially light. And then the third phase is, this, you know, you call it light and fast and, and having gone through two of your <laughs> quote unquote rehabs. Uh, this, this isn't like, Oh, well we just did this heavy thing and now we get to take weight off the, off the, uh, you know, the accessory lift, uh, the leg press for the example that we've been using. It's more so like, okay, well now I don't have to do tempo squats anymore. I'm doing normal tempo squats, but I'm going to limit the load to 60%, 65%, 70%. And the whole point is like, I haven't touched anything like this in a while. So even though I could, take this up to a single at RP eight or 90% of my one RM or whatever that happens to be for the day. I shouldn't because I'm relatively unprepared for this. So I'm going to artificially keep it light or, and then I'm going to move these without sort of tempo restrictions. And that's, again, we're transitioning towards training more normally. So that's like one aspect of this. And I'll let you comment on that here in a second. And the second phase is like maybe even trying to push higher velocity movements, particularly when they were previously not well tolerated or the person had no exposure to it before you have a lot of power lifters, for example, where everything is low and slow, right? It's like five at nine, four at nine, three at nine, one at nine, whatever. And everything moves slowly. You're trying to move it as fast as possible, but because the weight is just slow and it's like, well, we want you to be able to move fast too, you know, have that capacity and to tolerate that. So maybe you're doing speed deadlifts, you know, it doesn't have to be on a one minute clock or a 30 second clock, but maybe you're 
selecting a lighter load and trying to move it as fast as possible just to, again, give you more capacity to tolerate stuff that uh, you may be exposed to. Uh, can you speak to speak to those two things? Yeah, I think the the example you used is very good. And, and I want to turn it back into the meat and potatoes conversation because, you know, my cooking stuff as we introduce the light and fast, it is relative to the athlete themselves. And this is going to be an instance where we might be operating at a 60% load cap and still running sets, but your cue is to come out of the hole as fast as possible, or even, you know, pulling off the ground as, as fast as you can. I have an athlete right now who's doing a one count shin pause. And then like, it just says explode afterwards. I just want it as fast as possible. And it's just getting comfortable with that movement, but I don't want it perceived as the phases don't overlap some as well, because even as we're introducing the light and fast, we're still relying on the heavy and slow to build up our base and foundation. Again, this is still part of that phase, uh, a part of the process of building tolerance, building capacity, building movement options for somebody. Uh, I think we've all seen the person who squats with a very perfect torso angle, but it is so damn slow. You're like, bro, are you okay? Do you need assistance? Or the person from the deadlift, you know, when they're pulling from the floor, it's so slow. They're so patient. It looks great. But at the same time, you're like, I, I think you have so much left in the tank if you just pull the damn thing faster um, or try to, or at least be okay doing it. You know, I'm not trying to make somebody's self-selected movement strategy appear worse. Um, perhaps they default to it because it's the most successful, but I will at least want you to have options. And so, yeah, having somebody being able to volitionally accelerate a load as hard and as fast as possible is likely to uh, translate to better performance uh, when it comes to uh, lifting. And then for the, for the untrained person, they've probably never moved anything fast in their whole life. And so it's like, well, let's train that too. Why, you know, why, or when you can, and let's do both. Um, so this is, this is a, an important phase. Uh, when I was doing this for my adductor, you were like, you need to do speed deadlifts or some sort of jumps or something to get that adductor ready for you to like call upon it to lift 700 pounds when you want to deadlift something heavy. And I'm like, you mean like just deadlift something light, but fast. And you're like, yep, go for it. And I was like, okay, it felt weird, but at the same time, like I would have never done it otherwise. And who's to say how my trajectory would have, would have gone, uh, for the bench press. It was the same sort of thing. I was really good. Even probably six weeks post dislocation, uh, I could have benched four Oh five, for example, but the press off the chest would have been slow, not because I was weak, but because I was cautious and fearful and, you know, Oh, I don't want to like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to have liftoff here. Uh, liftoff in that case being like my pet tendon from my, <laughs> from my humerus. Uh, but you know, doing some of the lighter work at 225, 255, 265 kind of gave me confidence to say, Oh, I can, I can throw everything, you know, I can go full beans and, uh, and, and be good here. So I think that's part of what this, that process looks like. So you have the heavy stuff that may still be the isolation lifts or, or, or kind of, um, uh, the restricted movements that you had from the second phase, you have some intentionally faster movements. That's the new inclusion. And then you're sort of returning towards normalized training, but with load caps. And I think that's kind of, those are the hallmarks of that third phase. Uh, how long you think this takes on average, Derek? I would say depending on the athlete's training history, this is probably the widest variance. Um, 
I've seen athletes pick up on this side of it in a week and I've seen sometimes four to six weeks. And I think to your point, it is the, how, how normal is it for this athlete to go fast? And sometimes it is really encouraging that it is okay to challenge the system. And especially with powerlifters, this is where you end up gassing a lot of people just because they're, cardio isn't where it needs to be, or they've never really tried to dial up the speed on things yeah. before. So, yeah. yeah, I agree. So you have the person who's got like some training history, but has never actually trained high velocity movements. And this thing, you're going to need some time for those adaptations to actually occur before you can like move on pass, go collect $200. And so it's probably not going to be one week or two weeks because the adaptations are going to come on their own accord. And you just have to like recognize when they show up, you're like, Oh, I'm way better at this now. I feel that's a, a good thing that I, a good feather I put in my cap. I can move on. For the person who is untrained completely prior to this, they just, they, maybe they were playing golf, got diagnosed with Spondy. They haven't really trained uh, formally before. This may, is going to take longer, but the, all of their adaptations are taking longer. It's going to take long. They've got to gain a bunch of muscle mass. They've got to gain strength and all types of strength, low velocity strength, high velocity strength, and everything in between. So I wouldn't rush this session, this section just because a person is not having pain, for example, it's just like how quickly these adaptations showing up and they're on their own clock. Well, and I think to your point here, it, golf is the perfect analogy because it's also somewhere where we have extension rotation and see things like spondies. So our, our light and fast here might be like, okay, you can now bust out your, your pitching wedge, your nine iron, but you're, you're working on placement. You're not trying to drill this down the fairway as far as you can and starting to get some swings in where you're getting some velocity. But in the same regard, every, the first time people go to the range, it's like, well, let's break out the big sticks. Driver, let's go. Yeah. Full yeah. set. <laughs> and, and so our, our light and fast here is going to be capping, like with golfers, a lot of times I'll put an iron cap on there. Like you're not allowed to, like eight, nine pitching sand, knock yourself out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I ha I've seen it. There's a few people that I, I follow within the golf space, um, particularly like golf rehab and, and golf is so interesting because you have people who have tons of resources that play golf in general. It's, you know, it's expensive to buy clubs. It's expensive to play golf. You got to have a bunch of free time, this, that, and the other. And most of them do not exercise at all at the, in the professional level, a good chunk do, but some of that training is kind of cringy. Um, but by and large, you, your recreational player, just like the general population does not exercise and certainly is not doing resistance training or meeting the physical activity guidelines. And so they get an injury, whether it's spondy or some low back pain or, you know, whatever starts to hurt at it, golfer's elbow, if you will. And, uh, they get told to rest even more than they were before. So they're even more detrained than they were before. And then they're like, ah, it's feeling okay. I'm going to go to the range and they just go back to their traditional warm up. All right, I'm going to hit 10 pitching wedges. I'm going to hit 10, seven irons. I'm going to hit a couple longer irons and driver. Boom. And it's like, bro, you've literally been detraining the last whatever weeks, months, et cetera. And we're trying to get back to a place where you can play once a week, a couple times a week, multiple times per month with, and not end up back in the same place you were. We need to have some sort of limits here so that we can build tolerance to that. Um, so yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, Okay. So we've got this variation in, in how long it's going to take just really, again, depends on what somebody wants to do, what they've been doing previously and, and kind of how they're responding. That's just programming 101 there. The final phase, you call it heavy and fast. And I, uh, to me, this is like, we're, we're there. We're, we're like doing normal stuff. Are there caveats to that? Is this just like, 
okay, I guess go back to what you were doing or, or like, do you have some sort of, uh, some pearls for the, for the listeners? I, I think it depends on what they were doing. Uh, cause heavy and fast for well, you and I have talked about this with your own rehab, heavy and fast wasn't go full send on day one. It was start working up and it may be week one programming a single at eight, the next week, a single at nine, just so we can start titrating what is going to constitute heavy for us right now. But we're starting to talk much more in the full send YOLO, let's test the water side of it. And I think a lot of times we do a disservice to athletes in the rehab realm where we may leave a little bit too much of that gap in between where we say you're clear and how much you can push back into it because everyone like like we said you get out the big sticks your first day back at the range and it is stepping through some of that weight a little bit more even if we move the cap to 80 percent and then 90 percent and and taking those steps along the way to get you as close to possible because if you're going to go out and do freak things I want you to be freakishly ready for it. Yep. Yeah. Th- this is, I view phase four as like what should have been happening in the first place. So, so basically you've done like a needs analysis, like, all right, what am I, what am I trying to do? What do I want to do? And how do I bridge that gap? And so somebody's kind of ended up in this situation because they were inadequately prepared, you know, for what they were trying to do. Um, just broadly speaking, it doesn't mean that they're, it's their fault or like that they're a bad person or whatever. It's just like, look, you were unprepared for what you were being asked to do and, you know, got unlucky and, and here we are. So like, how do we prevent that from happening again? Well, we got to bridge the gap between what you're currently able to do, what you want to do. So that phase four, this last phase just depends on how far away you are and how freaky you're trying to get your capacity. So yeah, I, you would prefer if people who are listening to this podcast, again, where we're talking to Derek Miles, we're talking about Spondy and, and, and how the, and, and, and training with, with a, a spondylolysis or spondylolisthesis. Um, you would prefer if people are listening to this and they don't have that, uh, pain from it, that they consider what we're talking about and say, all right, well, am I adequately prepared for what I'm asking myself to do? And if you can honestly say yes, carry on, do, do your thing. But that has not been my experience with the vast majority of people that I come across. It's almost you're, we're playing with, uh, uh, you know, a, a loaded gun and, and, and hoping it doesn't go off. And it's like, we could, we could spend some time doing some preparatory work and, and we'd be a lot better for it. Well, what's the famous psychology saying? It's we judge ourselves by our, our intentions and others by their actions. Yes. Yeah, right. And yeah. Well, like I, I've gotten in the habit now of asking athletes, like if you program this for an athlete that you were training, would this be a good idea? Mm-hmm. And like in, you know, I, once again, I am guilty of this as well. But we're, we're really good at overestimating our capabilities. And no matter how spectacular our intentions are, most of the time I'm comfortable saying there is a gap between where we are and where we want to be in terms of our performance. And it just depends mm-hmm. on how big that gap is and, and what how honest with ourselves we need to be in terms of closing it. Yep. Yeah, people are like, oh, I'm going to start doing BJJ. I'm going to start doing it three times a week. How should I modify my training? And I'm like, okay, hold on, Wayne. You've been doing training, resistance training and and cardiorespiratory fitness training for the last, let's call it 10 years. You're really good at tolerating that if you've been following intelligent programming and adjusting it as needed to, uh, to progress, et cetera, et cetera. So you're really good at that. What we're lacking here is tolerance for BJJ. 
and we want to par- start participating in BJJ. And so why not, instead of jumping into three times a week BJJ, we start at one time a week with some sort of intensity cap, build some capacity there, and then ratchet that up as you get better and better equipped to handle it rather rather than than eliminate the thing or reduce the thing that you're well suited to do and has likely set you up for success already it's like we, we need to shore that gap up and, and it's usually not by like robbing peter to pay paul uh I, I i think that most people want to eliminate the stuff that's like preparing them already in hopes that they have enough resources to just hang on when something new comes along and i'd rather titrate the new thing and keep what you were doing previously. Uh, and then you can, you can ultimately thrive in that sort of environment. What, did you play more than one sport in high school? I was, uh, I raced dirt bikes oh, and then, right. yeah. So not, no real sports. And, uh, <laughs> there's any person who's played football and went into basketball season or basketball season, went into track season. They can, all remember if they think back on it, like going from football season to basketball season, I was sore in my low back for the first two weeks just because I hadn't been in that defensive position. And at that point I was participating in football five days a week for two hours and in the weight room an additional three hours a week. And now at 40 years old for me to think, okay, I have my, well, in this instance, this is probably the best I'm ever going to be my six hours of rowing in four to five hours of lifting a week and I'm now going to throw in an additional five hours of BJJ. It's like, well, I just increased my overall training by 33%. Can I really be excited? And I, both the lifting I do and rowing, I'm in a very fixed position. And now I'm going to go do this sport where the objective is of the sport is to, or is for someone to put me in a position I don't want to be in. If I've only been rowing and lifting, that's probably a pretty uh, numerous set of positions that you can accomplish this. Yeah. Yeah. The closer the things are that you're trying to, that the closer the things are that you're trying to do to what you already do, the less sort of caution. I think that's a good general rule. You just need less caution. You know, for example, if I wanted to start doing Olympic weightlifting, well, I've been doing a lot of lifting. I could jump into that a little more aggressively than if I decided to take up BJJ in this case, for example, that's just, not as well prepared. Um, and I think that the thing that you're not well prepared for need, you just need more caution when you introduce it. And that's the point of this last phase. And so the length of this last phase is likely related to what is the gap between what you want to do and what you can do now. Um, if you're just returning to powerlifting, that's a pretty straightforward like task. Like, all right, well, we've been doing this throughout rehab. You did it before or, or some semblance thereof. We probably don't have that long to go, but if there are a lot of things that you need to be prepared for that you're not currently able to do. Well, this last phase, you can think about it as just GPP. You're, you're just trying to get ready for what you're, you're, you want to do. And I think being honest and uh, uh, carefully considering what you need to do versus what you can do currently. Um, that's, that's that sort of, that's the art here. And that's where a good coach can come in handy. So if you guys look at all of our, our rehab templates, this is the kind of phase, this is the sort of setup that we, we do. Um, this is what our pain and rehab team does. Uh, Dr. Derek Miles being the, the head of our, our pain and rehab team. If you guys have read his art, these articles on Spondy or, or other pain and rehab articles and you need some dedicated guidance, definitely hit up our team. Uh, Derek, where can people find you 
I, I keep trying to push people to your, to your social media, but I think it comes better. It's better from the horse's mouth. You can find me on Instagram at Derek underscore barbell medicine. Um, I run a cut rate cooking show where I also make a lot of analogies to manual therapy and, uh, on Twitter at D miles PT. I'm not that active there, but I'm trying to be a little bit better about it. And you can also, if you have questions, email me, Derek at barbellmedicine.com. Yep. We also have a pain and rehab forum on our website. If you want to post about questions, our rehab team is actively answering stuff there. Um, and then all the resources we talked about, the articles on Spondy parts one and part two are linked in the description below. And uh, you can find more on that there. Uh, Dr. Derek Miles, thank you for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Uh, guys, before you go anywhere, wherever you're listening to this, your preferred podcast platform of choice, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.